Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Not an idle question, it's a test to see whether they can trick Jesus. I don't know about you, I don't know whether you've, because I've been away and I'm really sorry about not being here last week, um, I don't know whether you've been following the, the lectionary, but I'm getting a bit tired of these tests of Jesus. It's always trying to poke at him, trying to figure out who, why, why, does they, why do they need to test Jesus? What is it about what he says and does, who he is, that so upsets the normal way of doing things? He fit, refuses to fit the neat pattern of the world that people have developed that has been built by these religious leaders. They built a system where they were in control, they were, they were in charge, where very few things could go wrong. And Jesus kept upsetting it. We, of course, do exactly the same thing. We prefer a world that we can control. And we don't like it when we can't. So which commandment is the greatest? Have you noticed that Jesus didn't answer the question? Or he didn't answer it properly? The question was, what is the greatest? Which one is the greatest? And Jesus gives them two commandments. I think in doing so, he is critiquing the questions and the assumption behind their questions. They've made assumptions about these things that we call the Ten Commandments, that they are laws to be obeyed. And obedience is grim, hard labour, isn't it? Constantly checking yourself whether you've done it right. You may do this all the time, or you should do this all the time if you're driving. Check your speedo to make sure you aren't going over the speed limit. It's hard work. You can't just relax. And since we'll run out of energy doing the hard, grim work of trying to keep laws, and since we won't have as much commitment as we would like, it's important to order the laws that we have to follow to make sure we're following the right ones with as much energy as we can. And if we don't get to the lesser ones, well, at least we're doing the best we can. We ought to rank them in order of greatness. But Jesus, I don't think, has that view of the Ten Commandments. For Jesus, the Ten Commandments are not law, L-A-W. They're law, L-O-R-E. Law is a rich collection of stories, of history, of poetry, of song, of aphorisms, all kinds of things that shape a way of being a people. They tell a people how to live. We have all kinds of law in our culture. Certain things that we just do. We shake hands in our culture. In many cultures, we don't. But in our culture, we shake hands, or at least we did, except for when COVID happened. It's a, a law, it's a way of saying to each other that this is the way we are as a people. Uh, when I was first doing work in the church, I was a young man and I, I worked with a minister and he told me that um, when I went to people's houses, because I would go with him to meet people and, and learn about people, and they would say to me, would you like a cup of tea? And I didn't like either tea or coffee, so I would always say no. And after a while he took me aside and said, you either have to learn to like one or the other. Because the people aren't asking you whether you're dying of thirst. They're asking you, will you come in to my community? Can we be together for a small, short period of time? It's part of our law. That's how Jesus understood the Ten Commandments, I believe. It's a whole story of who the people are. The Ten Commandments, if you like, the ones that we can read in the book of Exodus and somewhat in Leviticus, uh, they're like the PowerPoint slides 
Behind the PowerPoint slides is a whole way of being. They're just the things that you need to remember, not so that you will do them in grim obedience, but so that they will point to something else. So when it says, honour your father or mother, it's not with gritted teeth, although some of us at some times feel like we may have had to do that with our parents for a short period of time, and if we've got children, I'll bet they're doing that to us from time to time. It's not that. It's about a whole way of being, of honouring and respecting and enjoying and living together with the people who brought us up. They're, if you like, the skeleton around which a whole, the whole flesh of what it means to be human is built. Commandments are the bare bones. The whole law, the whole L-O-R-E, the whole way of being human is built into that. And how do you rank that? How do you rank what's important in the whole story of how to be human and how to be in human community? What's more important, breathing in or breathing out? What's more necessary at the moment of conception, the male or the female? This doesn't make any sense. What's more wonderful, sunrise or sunset? These things don't make any sense. You can't rank what it means to be human. Everything is deeply connected. It's all a part of the whole. That's why Jesus is not willing to answer the question, what is the greatest? He adds a, another one. He expands it out. He says that all of life is a whole. We, we know this. We're learning to our detriment that there's no a way to where we can throw things. All of our rubbish is with us and is choking us. Professor called uh, John, I think, Hardin, Hardin's Law, he developed uh, out of ecology, but it translates into all kinds of bits of life. You can never do just one thing. That's Hardin's Law. You can never do just one thing. Because if you do one thing, it radiates out into another thing. Think about it. Everything you do connects to everything else. Carl Sagan, the great astronomer, said, if you, want to create, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first create the universe. If you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first create the universe. It's all connected. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's why he then goes on, I think, and says this very strange thing that seems to have nothing to do with anything. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? What's that got to do with which law is the greatest? Now, the Messiah was central to the way people thought in Jesus' time. The Messiah was a symbol of liberation. And if you're under the heel of the Roman Empire, liberation is at the front of your mind all the time. It's the longing for liberation that the Messiah represents. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Why, why are we dealing with this? If you live in a hierarchical world, then a son never addresses his, a, a father never addresses his son as Lord because, well, the father is the higher one and the son is the lower one and that's just the way it is and, and son would never be treated like that. I think Jesus is saying, you know, 
your rigid view of the way the world is, the way the world works, the way the Messiah is going to come and liberate us, whatever that looks like, may not be as, on, as straightforward as you think it is. May not be the Messiah will come and destroy the Romans by having more power. It's, it's really hard to talk about this as we're reading the news out of Israel-Palestine, isn't it? Where might makes right and where ordinary people are being so damaged. What if it's wrong? What if the idea that you are certain about the way the world works, there's a hierarchy of laws, uh, there's a hierarchy of power. What if that's wrong? What if to be engaged with the sacred? What if to be engaged with the meaning of what it means, uh, the central meaning of what it means to be a human being and to be part of human community? What if it's much more complex? What if it's a whole story that we have to tell? It's complex and nuanced. What if the Bible isn't a workshop manual that will give you instructions on how to make a human being and how to live in human community? W.C. Fields, the famous um, silent movie actor, was once found reading the Bible and somebody asked him why he was doing it and he said, I'm looking for loopholes. Because that's the Bible. It's an instruction book that you've got to get right. But what if it's not? What if it's a work of art? What if it's a collection of writings? What if it's a collection of stories, a collection of longings in the Psalms, a collection of stories that try and interpret what it means to be a human being in relation to the infinite? What if we approached it like poetry or like a painting or a sculpture? Nobody tells you this is what it means, at least not if you're doing your art properly. You're invited to say, what does this make you feel? What are you experiencing? You might be, need a little bit of information. When it was painted, when it was sculpted, who wrote the poem. But it's about how it makes you experience it and feel it. I think when Jesus says the law, he means not L-A-W, but L-O-R-E, the whole way of being human. So when he says... And when Exodus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. What if it's not saying you shall, you must, you will, under pain of death? What if it's saying you shall, you will, one day, this will just be who you are. This is not something you must do. This is a prophecy about how you will be. This is how all human beings will be. We will naturally come out of, the, out of who we are as individuals and as a community, we will find ourselves in love with the whole of the universe, with each other, with everything that makes God, God. We're a long way from it and have to read the news for this morning. It's like this. A young man invites a young woman who is very fond of and very keen on, home to, be, to meet his parents. This young man is in his early adulthood. He's been living in this house with his parents all his life and they have had all kinds of grief, getting him to clean up his room, getting him to do the dishes, 
getting him to just act like another adult in the house. Every meal, it's the same thing. It's your turn to do this. No, just do the freaking dishes. Then he invites this girl over. They have a lovely meal. She's kind and nice to their to his parents. They are enraptured with her. She's so lovely. And at the end of the meal, she says, let's do the dishes. She gets up, she goes into the kitchen, she starts the dishes, and you know what the boy does? Of course you do know what he does. He goes in and he starts doing the dishes. No one told him to, no one required him to, he didn't have to look at the roster, he just got up and did the dishes. That's the difference between L-A-W and L-O-R-E. That's the world we're being called into, a world of love and engagement, a world of generosity to ourselves and to each other. You don't need to rank it. You don't need to have a greatest and the next one and the next one and the next one and grimly go at it. Just need to relax into the love that is already present in you and among you. And if you don't believe me, go outside when we finish and see what glorious world, the glorious world is out there that has been gifted to you. You didn't ask to be born. You didn't plan to be born. You didn't pay to be born. Nothing happened except you turned up. It's a gift. It's always been a gift. It's a gift to all of us in every moment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. You just will. You shall. Do you now? Well, yeah, bits and pieces, depending on the weather, depending on when I've got a headache, depending on who did this or that didn't do this to me. Yeah, comes and goes, but it shall be. It will be. That's the, that's the Jesus that we have in this story, I think.